Well, good morning. As always, it is a great privilege and an honor to have this opportunity to worship with you and to preach to you from God's holy and sufficient word. Before I introduce our text for this morning, I want to take this moment to, to thank you as my brothers and sisters in Christ. Over the past two and a half weeks, you have loved and supported Rachel and I as we have taken on the responsibility of fostering Dominic and Riley. Seeing your love expressed to us has reminded me of chapter 27 in our confession. That chapter is titled, Of the Communion of the Saints. And paragraph one of that chapter begins in this way. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and faith, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, and resurrection, and glory. And so that chapter begins by stating the great truth of our union with Christ. That if we are believers, we have received Christ clothed in all of his benefits. That and that alone should cause us as Christians to rejoice with all of our hearts. We have been united to Christ and all that he is has been given to us for our benefit. But as is the case with the Christian faith, and I want you to understand this, this, this is very important for us to grasp. As is the case with the Christian faith, the grace of our God is a superabounding grace. Paul in Ephesians will say that God saved us so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so in chapter 27 of our confession, it doesn't stop at the amazing reality of our faith union with Christ. But rather, it goes on to state that not only have we been united to Christ, but that we have also been united to one another in love. And thus, we have communion in each other's gifts and graces. And as the hymn that we just sang a few minutes ago, the hill of Zion yields. And, and what it means when it says the hill of Zion is simply this. It is describing life in the context of the kingdom of God, which is visibly manifested primarily in this age, through the local church. And so this hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. Brothers and sisters, I have in a very special way these past two weeks been keenly aware that I have been united in love with you and that I have been receiving the benefits of your gifts and your graces. And so I am very thankful your prayers, your words of encouragement, your acts of service have been sacred sweets that my wife and I have been enjoying as we march through Emmanuel's land to fairer worlds on high. And so I do encourage you as well to begin to be more intentional about opening your eyes to see all the sacred sweets that the God of love is supplying you as you march on your way to your eternal home. Well, with that in mind, I now want to introduce you to our text and consequently also introduce you to the sermon series that we are beginning this week. <clears throat> our text this morning is found in the little Old Testament book of Ruth. Now, obviously, as you can see, we are taking a little break from our consecutive exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And why are we taking a break from the Gospel of Mark? Well, the reason that we are doing that is this because we are entering into the Christmas season. And as you know, for the next several weeks, everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, you are going to be reminded of Christmas. Even, I, even as I was working on my sermon this week, in the search bar at the bottom of my screen, there was a little image of a Christmas tree. And I didn't put that Christmas tree there. And I kindly doubt the person that put it there was a Christian. Probably wasn't. But everywhere you look, you're going to be reminded of Christmas. You, you literally can't go anywhere without being reminded that, that we are in the Christmas season. And sure, perhaps the overwhelming majority of this is a result of the over-commercialization of this holiday season. And no doubt, that perhaps the majority of the citizens in this country will be celebrating this, se this season because it is the cultural thing to do. It's just what you do as an American. And so, and so because we see this commercialization and even secularization of Christmas, we can, especially in Reformed circles, be tempted to lean towards an almost a, almost a bah humbug approach to the season. We're not going to participate in this thing that has been corrupted by our wicked culture. That's a, 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 a mind frame that we can get into if we're not careful. 
And I would submit to you that it is not required to celebrate the Christmas season. There is no command in Scripture to do so. But dear ones, we have a good God who has in his providence made it to where the name of Jesus is spoken more in the month of December than in any other month of the year. That's just the reality of it. And so because we are going to be bombarded with reminders of, Christ, of Christmas anyways, it seems to be prudent that we would, from the pulpit and in the context of our corporate worship, focus in on the first coming of our Lord during the month of December. And dear ones, the truth of the matter is this. The incarnation of our Lord, and by the way, our, our brother Samuel has written an excellent article in the box about the incarnation of our Lord, and so I do encourage you to read that article and be encouraged by it. But the incarnation, the first coming of our Lord, is absolutely foundational to the gospel. It's foundational to the very Christian faith. And thus, it is absolutely critical for the good of our souls, for us to regularly think about the first coming of our Lord. And so it is not unbalanced or unreasonable for us to spend a month every year focusing in on this critical aspect of the story of our redemption. And so this year, the way that we want to do that is by considering together the book of Ruth. Ruth happens to have four chapters, and so for the next four weeks, as we are leading up to Christmas Day, we're going to be moving through the book of Ruth covering one chapter a week. And as we do so, we're going to be looking at how this book, which was written a little over a thousand years before the first coming of Christ, sometimes subtly and sometimes quite plainly points to the central event in all of human history, which is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And so today we begin with Ruth chapter 1. So if you would, please turn to Ruth 1, and let us read the holy and inspired word of the living God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These, two, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Milan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and, bear, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. My daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, that is Naomi, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, 
And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. With us, the reading of God's word, and may his people say, Amen. Let's go before the throne of grace and ask for his help as we consider this portion of God's word. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we have opened up your word this morning, we do pray that you would help us to understand the gravity and the blessedness of what we are engaging in. As Peter confessed to Jesus, truly the words that proceed from your mouth are the words of life. So, Father, I would pray that you would grant life today to your people. For those in this room who are walking with Christ, may you, may you cause them to grow in grace and knowledge. And for those in this room who, who have no true relationship with you, may this day be the day that King Jesus would grant them life through the second birth. Father, we do pray that you would bless your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's begin our exposition of this chapter. The first thing that I want you to notice about our chapter today is that, is that really the narrative of chapter 1 can be broken down very neatly into three scenes. If the book of Ruth was set to a movie, you'd have very, three very clear transitions where the screen would fade to black and then a new scene would come into focus. Those three scenes are as follows. In scene 1, we have a triad of tragedies that strike the family of Naomi. These tragedies are recorded for us in verses 1 through 5 of the narrative. In scene 2, <clears throat> there is another triad, as three women, three widow women, each face a crucial turning point in their lives. This scene is recorded for us in verses 6 through 18. <clears throat> and then lastly, we have a scene of two women arriving in the town of Bethlehem, recorded for us in verses 19 through 22. <clears throat> Let's begin by looking at the first scene where we see a triad of tragedies in verses 1 through 5. If you would, notice with me again. We'll read together again verses 1 through 3. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Well, here we are introduced to the first tragic event that sets into motion the whole story of the book of Ruth. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, what is so significant about that particular statement? Well, as we've already noted, the events of the book of Ruth occur during the time of the book of Judges. And what was the significant and repeated theme in the book of Judges? If you remember from the book of Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The time of the Judges was a time marked by the disobedience and unfaithfulness of the covenant people of God. Now, we need to understand that the very occurrence of a famine in the promised land, the land of which God's covenant people dwelt in, is a significant theological occurrence. You see, the promised land was a land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. It was a land of abundance. In fact, it says that this family left from what town? They left from Bethlehem, 
which in Hebrew literally means house of bread. And so surely you see the irony. The, this family was fleeing from the house of bread because there was no bread. The question we need to ask then is this. Why was there no bread in Bethlehem? Why was there a famine in the promised land? Well, the answer to this question is found back in Deuteronomy chapter 28 in verses 15 and forward, where God pronounces a long list of curses that will come upon his covenant people if they disobeyed him. A repeated theme in that list of curses is that he will bring about famine, that he will cause their crops and their harvest to fail. Well, the covenant people of God were disobedient in the time of the judges. And as a result, the land, the nation, was judged by God and they underwent a great famine. But we must remember that nations are not ultimately abstract, impersonal realities. No, nations are comprised of individual family units. And so in verse 2, we are introduced to one particular family unit that was suffering along with the whole of the nation. That family was comprised of Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two young sons, Milan and Chilion. Now, I want to do a brief excursus here that I think is warranted by what is taking place in our text. If you remember back in the book of Judges, what was the focus on? The focus was on the nation. It was on the whole of the people of Israel. It focuses on the major leaders of the nation. And so you have this broad, macro-level look at a nation. And you see that God's providence is involved in the workings of that nation. But as we come to the book of Ruth, that broad macro level focus is shrunk down and a microscope as it were is placed on one particular Jewish family and there doesn't seem to be anything special about this particular Jewish family it's just a random family that is suffering in the midst of a national tragedy now what is something very practical that we can learn and apply to our lives as we see the inspired word of God go from the macro level focus of the book of Judges to the micro-level focus of one particular family in the book of Ruth. Well, I think C.S. Lewis has a quote that is helpful on this particular matter. He writes, God has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass of humanity. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being that was ever created. As one writer interacting with Lewis quoted, quote, as one writer interacting with Lewis quotes, he says, it is possible that Lewis is wrong. Maybe God is too busy with 10 billion requests coming to him to give attention to yours. Maybe he has more important Christians to deal with than to spend time in fellowship with you, especially you who continually fail him. The writer goes on to say, however, it seems to me that Lewis is right. The God revealed in Scripture is not bound to time or overwhelmed with the requests of the masses. He is able to treat us as individuals as if no other existed and it were you and him alone, like original Adam in the garden. Brothers and sisters, our doctrine of God is very important and it is very practical. Is God concerned right now with what is happening at the international and national levels. Of course he is. He is intimately involved with that. He is the one that raises nations up, and he is the one that brings nations down. But it's also true that this same God knows the number of hairs on your head. And when you approach him in prayer, when you commune with him in worship, both privately and publicly, when you are going about your daily task, even when you sleep, his focus is completely on you. This is something that can be said only of our infinite God. I've learned very quickly in the past two weeks that I am very finite. It's hard to focus on two different children at the same time who have different needs. But the same cannot be said about our Heavenly Father. And so this morning, dear saint, be encouraged. No matter what you are going through right now in your life, 
The God of this universe is fully engaged in your life and is fully attentive to you. You don't have to get his attention. His eye is on the sparrow. How much more so is his eye on you, even at this very moment? So turn to him and trust that he is ever able and ever willing to do good unto you. Well, this leads us back to our family in Ruth. God's attention was on them. Yes, they were suffering, but what should they have done? Well, Deuteronomy has the answer once again. In chapter 30, it states, Return to the Lord. So in chapter 28, God pronounces all these curses that will happen if you disobey. In chapter 30, he says, what, what you do, if you have received these curses, what should you do about it? It says, return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and in the fruit of your ground. Sinclair Ferguson writing on this states the following. God is saying to this family, as well as to the whole nation, little family, set in my covenant community in these needy days, return to me. Call upon me and I will have mercy on you. Repent of your sins. I will come to you with forgiveness and grace. I will restore everything that has now been taken from you. I do not desire to do you harm, but to do you good. Surely you know that. Then return to me. And so I ask you the same question. Surely you know that God, whose attention is set upon you, desires to do you good and not to do you harm. And so return to him. But let's notice what this family did. They didn't return to him. They did the opposite. It says they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And so instead of returning to the Lord, this family did the opposite. They ran away from the Lord. And there's a lesson there for us as well. Dear ones, so often when individuals and families go through hard times, the tendency is to run away from the very source of all of our hope and blessing. When people are struggling, they tend to pull away from God, the church, and the very means of grace that God has given to help us in our times of need. And so I implore you as one of your pastors and on behalf of the God of love, resist any and every temptation to pull away when times get hard. You need God, you need his people, and you need the means that he has given for your sanctification and your perseverance. One of the dangers of pulling away when things get hard is that you will get comfortable being away and you will remain away. And we see that very thing happen to this family. They went to sojourn in Moab, which implied an initial desire to be gone a short time. And how many times do we pull away and we justify it by saying, I just need a little time to myself. But it says at the end of verse 2 that they went into the country of Moab and they stayed there. Now let's notice verse 3 in the second of the three tragedies that this family faces. It states, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. The head of the house, the husband, the father, Elimelech, who brought his family into Moab, dies. And it seems that this was an, an unexpected and untimely death. He had two young sons. And we can only imagine the heartbreak and the fear that Naomi would have gone through as a result of this tragedy. Her husband and the father of her two sons is dead. And now Naomi is a refugee in a foreign land as a single mother. She has lost her closest companion, and she is cut off from her people. It appears, though, now despite the magnitude of this tragedy, it appears that, that Naomi did a good job dealing with this. Even though her husband was dead, she still had two, two young sons to raise. And so life kept coming at her, and she had to muster all of her strength to take care of her boys. And she raised them, and they grew up. And they reached the age of marrying, and both were able to marry. But, as you might expect, because the family had moved to Moab, 
and set up long-term residence there while the boys were young, the likelihood is that these boys only had a very nominal connection with the God and the religion of the Jewish people. They were Jews in name only, most likely. And so for them, marrying foreign women was not a big deal. And so they each married Moabite women. It says that these Moabite women were named Orpah and Ruth. I can imagine that Naomi probably knew that this was not best for her boys. Yet because she too had been cut off from her God and from her people for so long, she probably didn't feel like she had the ability to say anything about this. And even if she did say something about it, what is the likelihood that these boys would have listened? Because of their lack of exposure to the true worship of God, they probably had little concern for his law. And so parents, let that be a warning to you. If it is evident that you are not committed to following Christ as you ought, it's going to be very hard to tell your children that they ought to. If you don't love the Lord, if you're not following him, if you're not, if you're not committed to him in his ways, and you tell your child that they should be, they're not going to listen. Naomi, however, knew that when her boys married the Moabite women, that her grandchildren, according to the law of God, would not be allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation, which would have been, which would have been about 400 years. Her boys marrying these foreign women was essentially cutting off the family line from the covenant community of God's people. That's the significance of what happened there. And so the marriages of her two boys, which was meant to be a happy event, no doubt was tinged with sadness in the heart of Naomi. And yet the tragedy doesn't stop there for Naomi. In verse 5 we read that both of her sons also died. So that Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Well, as we reflect on this first scene, it is a stark reminder of the reality that we live in a fallen world. A world that is liable to the judgment of God. A world where material resources can dry up, leaving us in desperate need. A world where death is always lurking around the corner, threatening that which we hold most dear. The way that these five verses read reminds me of reading Genesis chapter 5, where as we go through that genealogy in Genesis, what is the continued phrase that we see in that, in that chapter? And he died. And he died. Over and over again. And he died. And so in a very real way, although this narrative is about one particular family, it serves as an accurate snapshot of the plight of fallen men. Because of our sin, we are deserving of the wrath of God. The wages of our sin is death. But the good news is that as we move through, the, through this book, we begin to see that God is going to do something to address this problem. In fact, it is this very problem that Christmas is all about. We sang it earlier in the hymn, Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Well, why was Christ born? Christ was born that man no more may die. That's the great hope of Christmas. God took on flesh, lived a perfect life as a man, and died a sacrificial death so that all who placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ could say with the Apostle Paul, O oh, death, where is your sting? Well, this time let's move into the second scene in our chapter this morning which is found in verses 6 through 18. In this scene, we have the account of three widow women who come to a crucial crossroads, both literally and figuratively. These women are about to face a turning point that will determine the course of their lives. These three women, of course, are Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. The turning point comes about as a result of something that Naomi hears while working in the fields in Moab. In verse 6 it says, While working one day, Naomi overhears the news that Yahweh had visited his people and had given them food. In other words, the famine in the land of Israel was over. Something that is interesting here in the Hebrew 
is that the word translated food in verse 6 is actually the word lakem, which is the Hebrew word for bread. Upon hearing this, Naomi determines that, that it is time to return to Bethlehem. It's time to go back to the house of bread and to leave the land of Moab. Now, something that is interesting here is that what we see in Naomi is actually very similar to what we read in the prodigal son recorded for us in Luke 15. If you would, keep your finger in Ruth, but turn to Luke chapter 15. Of course, we know the story of the prodigal son. The younger son wanted to, to cash out on his inheritance early. He wanted to leave the father's house. And he, deter- and he determined to go live in a far country. Naomi also left the father's house to go live in a far country. And of course, we know what the young son does. He squanders his inheritance. He lost everything. Naomi also lost everything. She says as much later in chapter, uh, in chapter 1 and verse, 20, uh, verse 21 of chapter 1. She said, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So she lost everything when she went away into this far country, just like the prodigal son did. Now, once the prodigal son had lost everything, we don't see him immediately returning back home, do we? Remember, he lost everything, then what did he do? He hired himself out to be what? To, to feed pigs. And he desired to eat the very food that the pigs were eating. But then in verse 17 of Luke 15, notice that verse, we read that the prodigal son came to himself. He said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? but I perish here with hunger. The prodigal son and Naomi alike came to their senses when they were reminded of the ability of God to truly meet their greatest need. They both heard that there was bread back home. The Westminster Confession of Faith makes a very helpful statement in its chapter on the doctrine of repentance. In chapter 15, paragraph 2, it says the following. It says that repentance happens when a sinner is enabled to get sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of the sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. So on the one hand, repentance happens when we understand the awfulness of our sin as being that which is an affront to our God. But it goes on to say this in the Westminster Confession, and this is very important. It says, Repentance happens when a sinner apprehends something of the mercy of God in Christ to such as are penitent. In other words, true repentance is not just feeling bad for our sin because it has offended God, but it also includes a sinner apprehending or believing that God will have mercy on me through Christ if I repent. It is a turning away from sin and a turning to the God of grace. Now, is this dynamic of what is taking place in repentance always crystal clear to the repentant sinner? No. But there is an apprehension. There is at the very least a mustard seed of faith that believes that God is good and that he is merciful and that he will forgive the repentant sinner through Christ. And so like the prodigal son... Naomi has come to her senses. She realizes that she needs to return back to her God and to her people. So we see first off in this scene, the repentance and the beginning of Naomi's restoration. So Naomi had determined to go back to Bethlehem. But interestingly enough, her two daughter-in-law said that that they will also go with her. And so the three widow women are making their way towards Bethlehem when Naomi understands that she needs to have a conversation with her two daughters-in-law. She tells them in verse 8, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, I want to take a brief aside here concerning the the relationship that Naomi had with her two daughters-in-law. 
it is very evident that the relationship between Naomi and Orpah and Ruth was a positive relationship. Naomi was a good mother-in-law to these two women, and they were good daughters-in-law. Brothers and sisters, it is necessary, so far as it depends upon you, to seek to have a peaceful and godly and dignified relationship with the family of your spouse. The stereotypes about in-laws are not acceptable among Christians. Let me put it very plainly. God calls you to love your in-laws. And so do that to the best of your ability. But let's turn our focus back to the way in which Naomi deals with her two daughters-in-law. In many ways, she deals with them in the same way that Jesus often dealt with those who expressed a desire to follow him. Now, it is interesting to note here, while Naomi was not, when Naomi, when Naomi was not walking in disobedience, when she was walking in disobedience to the Lord, she didn't have very much ability to speak to her sons. Remember that? Her, her sons married foreign women. Naomi knew that that was wrong, that they, that they shouldn't do that. But because she was walking in disobedience, she didn't have the, the integrity, the, the, the strength of her conscience to, to, to address that situation as she ought to. But now that she has repented and now that she is returning to the Lord and she is being restored, now she can, with, with a clean conscience, speak boldly to her daughters-in-law and speak to them about what is most necessary and good for their souls. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have the ability to speak to your family about Christ with a clean conscience, they need to be able to see your dedication to following the Lord. If you are lukewarm in your walk with Christ, don't expect to be able to don't expect to be able to speak freely and boldly of Christ to your family and friends. That's important as we move into this holiday season. If you're not walking with Christ the way you ought to, it's going to be very hard to witness to your family. So return to the Lord. Be restored unto him. So as I said, Naomi speaks in much the same way that Jesus spoke to would-be followers. Think of the time that Jesus spoke with the rich young ruler. He didn't just welcome him in did he no he, he didn't what, what jesus did he's, is jesus never downplayed the cost of discipleship and because of this there are many people who expressed an initial desire to follow jesus but when jesus pressed the cost of discipleship upon their hearts they reconsidered and they decided not to follow the lord well that's what we see in the account in the account of orpah in verse 10, after being told to go home, she says, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi does not stop pressing the cost of discipleship upon the conscience of Orpah. She goes on to remind her in the following verses. Orpah, for you to commit yourself to Naomi, to me, this would result in you likely having to give up the greatest desire that a young woman has, which is the desire to be married. She, in essence, was telling Orpah, if you follow me, there are no guarantees. I'm sad that, that your husband and my son has died, but if you follow me, that there, there, is not, there is not a guarantee that you will be able to marry again. Are you sure you want to go down this road with me? After hearing this, Orpah was greatly distressed, much like the rich young ruler. It states that she wept again, and then Orpah kissed Naomi, and she left. She went back home to her people and to her false gods. As we saw last week, the soul of Orpah's heart was not good soil. There was initial springing up, but it didn't last. When the realities of the narrow way were pressed upon Orpah, she fell away. And may this be a warning to us this morning. Many of us are young Christians. May we count the cost of discipleship. But let's do so understanding that Christ is worth every ounce of suffering that we may experience in this life. Well, that leads us to the, to the account of the third widow woman in this scene. And that is the woman of whom this book is named for, Ruth. Naomi pressed the cost of discipleship upon the conscience of Ruth in the same way that she did Orpah. In fact, after Orpah left, Naomi tried once more to dissuade Ruth from coming with her. But Ruth would not take no for an answer. And here we see something of the wonder of the work of regeneration. In John 3, Jesus says that the Spirit blows where it wishes. 
You had the same message being proclaimed to Orpah and to Ruth. One rejected the call to discipleship. The other embraced the call. The only explanation we have for this is the sovereign grace of our Lord. Now, let's notice how Ruth responds to Naomi in verses 16 and 17. To see how we see genuine marks of conversion in her heart. It says, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. The scene here is very interesting. It is as if Naomi is continuing to, to try to dissuade Ruth from coming and finally Ruth gets a word in edgewise. And she says in essence, listen to me, Naomi. Listen to me, mom. I am converted. I am converted. I love the Lord and I'm coming with you. The way that Ruth expresses her conversion experience may seem a little odd to our ears. But what she is doing in, this, in these verses, verses 16 and 17, is expressing the covenant language that God uses in the Old Testament. When God made a covenant with his people, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. To be a Christian, to be part of the covenant family of God, is to be brought to the realization that in reality that the that in reality, that the one true God is your God and his people are your people. That's what it means to be a Christian. That the one true God is your God and his people are your people. And so the question before you this morning is this. Have you been brought into covenant relationship with the one true God? Have you turned from idols to serve the living and true God? And is your desire to be in covenant with God and his people so strong that you, like Ruth, like the Apostle Paul, and like every other person who's ever come to love the Lord, that you are willing to forsake all else that you might have Christ. Heaven is the possession of those who take it by force. Revelation says it is to, it is to the one who conquers that receives the crown of life. Do you love the Lord and his people like Ruth the Moabite widow. Well, now we come to the third and final scene in this first chapter where two women, Naomi and Ruth, arrive in the town of Bethlehem. This is recorded for us in verses 19 through 22. When Naomi returns, she is met with astonishment from the women of the city. They haven't seen Naomi in over a decade. And no doubt the sheer amount of heartache that Naomi had went through and went through would have caused her to age considerably. And we can imagine that she was met with a, with a, um, mixed, a mixed response from the women in Bethlehem. Some were probably very happy to see Naomi. Others probably looked at her with great sympathy due to the tragedy that she had endured. While others may have looked at her with, with, looked at her with suspicion and judgment. Oh, I see that Naomi, the one who, who left us during the famine and went to live in Moab of all places, has finally decided to come back. As Naomi returns, she tells him that to, to not call her Naomi, which is a word that means pleasant, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. She says this because the Lord has dealt, very, has dealt with her very bitterly. She goes on to say she is left full, but she has come back empty. But in reality, she didn't come back empty. Yes, she feels the weight of her sin. Yes, she feels the sting of her losses. And yes, worldly speaking, she is empty. But with regards to the state of her soul, she is far more godly now than, we, than she was when she left. And this is the way it is with many Christians. The longer we walk the Christian life, the lower our estimation of ourselves becomes. And the higher our estimation of the grace of God becomes. So in a real way, the way up is down. And so as I, as I said, she didn't come back empty-handed. She came back more godly, more 
trusted, more dependent upon God. But she also came back as one who God used in the unlikely conversion of a Moabite woman named Ruth. And so it is with the mysterious providences of God. He will save each and every one of his elect people. And the works of his providence in achieving his sovereign decree are, are beyond our ability, to, our ability to comprehend. Truly, we can say with the hymn writer, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And so these two women come back to the town of Bethlehem in the, la in the land of Judah. Now, we've already seen in our hymnology this morning that the town of Bethlehem plays a crucial role in God's plan of redemption. This house of bread will become a source of blessing for the nation of Israel and even the whole world. First, as we will see later on in the book of Ruth and in 1 Samuel, it is from the town of Bethlehem which the Lord's anointed one, King David, will be born. In fact, the New Testament says that the town of Bethlehem will be known as the city of David, which is interesting. When you read the Old Testament, there's dozens of accounts where it says that Jerusalem is the city of David. But in the New Testament, there's only two times that the word city of David is used, and both times it refers to Bethlehem, not, not Jerusalem, which is interesting. Now, why is that important? Remember, the book of Ruth starts by stating that it was during the time of the judges that the famine took place. It was during the time of the judges that Israel seemed to be on this never-ending downward spiral. And you know that from the book of Judges. It seems like they just keep going down and down and down. But God was not going to leave his covenant people in such a deplorable condition. He had a plan to raise up a man that would become old covenant Israel's greatest king. Even in the gene genealogy of Christ, when it speaks of David, it says David the king. It would be as a result of the leadership of King David that Israel would achieve its greatest heights of power and prosperity and piety. As Israel went from being a fledgling nation to a regional superpower under David's leadership. And to think that the preparations for this great national and world-changing event was quietly being accomplished through the trials and tribulations of Naomi, leading to the unlikely conversion of a Moabite woman named Ruth. Now, we know that the nation of Israel did not remain in the glorious state that it enjoyed under the reign of King David. We know that, in fact, a few centuries after King David, the glory of the Lord would depart from Israel, and Israel would be forced into exile. But God didn't leave the fate of his people to chance. No, he made an unconditional covenant with David, known as the Davidic Covenant where he promised that David's son would reign on the throne forever. But we don't see in full detail in the Davidic covenant, and we don't see in full detail in the book of Ruth, that the one that would, that would be born in Bethlehem from David's lens would not, be, would not only be David's greater son, but in fact he would be David's Lord. The one who would be born in Bethlehem a little, little over a thousand years after the life of Ruth will be none other than the Christ of God. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And let's notice together the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And really, the genealogy of Jesus Christ serves as a divine commentary on the events of the Old Testament. Behind everything that was going on throughout the whole of the Old Testament was that God had made a promise to bring forth an offspring, an offspring that would come from Eve, an offspring that would come from Abraham, an offspring of Ruth and of David. And that offspring is none other than the one who will be named Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Notice chapter 1, verse 5 of Matthew. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. 
and then dropping down to the end of the, gen of the, of the genealogy in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And notice over in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so our, ex our exposition of this chapter started with a reminder of the fallen condition of man. That we are a needy people. But as the prodigal son remembered that in the father's house there was plenty of bread to go around. In due, town, in due time, this little town known as the house of bread, in this little town, the bread of God would come down from heaven and give life to the world. John 6, 33. And of, course, and of course, this bread of God is none other than Jesus Christ himself, who speaking of himself says that he is the bread of life. And his gospel invitation to us is this, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Brothers and sisters, may we understand the significance of Ruth, the unlikely convert from Moab, who in the mysterious providence came to live in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and who would be included in the line from which the Christ, the living bread from heaven, would come down on that first Christmas day. And so may we dwell in the house of bread, and may we feed upon the living bread this Christmas season. Come, buy and eat the bread of life without money, without price. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we are amazed at your providence and how you work all things together so that your people, us today, would be saved. Father, help us to abide in Christ this Christmas season. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.